Welcome to the ALN Academy's Talks. This is Angelica, head of the ALN Academy. The ALN Academy's Talks aim to promote conversations on rule of law in Africa, and today we focus on gender. We are delighted today to introduce to you our guest speaker, Dr. Maxime Winato. Dr. Maxime is the Regional Director for East and Southern Africa of UN Women. He has been recently appointed as Regional Director he previously he used to serve as country representative for Uganda for UN Women, also as deputy regional director for UN Women uh, on the regional office for Western and Southern Africa, and UN Women country representative in Mali. I am also delighted to introduce to you Aisha Abdallah, partner at ALN Kenya and Darwala and Kana. Today our talk will focus on the impacts of COVID-19 on gender and the role of UN women in strengthening the rule of law in Africa for African women. We welcome our audience. We are live on Zoom with our 15 different African uh, countries from ALN, including the UAE, and we're also live on our YouTube channel. Dr. Maxim, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. Aisha, thank you so much for being here. Aisha, I give you the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Angelica. Welcome, Dr. Winato. Um, welcome to Kenya. I understand you've only been here one month. So we look forward to um, showing you our um, Kenyan welcome. Um, starting us off, uh, you've had quite a long career with UN Women. Um, over that period of time, I think you've been involved in a number of policies and programs that have had a positive impact for women um, in Africa. Could you maybe mention some of these initiatives and explain what impact they have had? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think uh, most of my interventions in the area of gender promotion has uh, had the background of my own life in terms of uh, being from a family where uh, gender equality has always been an issue. Uh, with parents that uh, have been married several times uh, with uh, different situations that uh, uh, exemplify the acute inequality between men and women. And also my studies, uh, education background, I started as an economist and then I progressed uh, to become a sociologist where you touch on issues that has to do uh, with uh, inequality in society, not just gender inequality, but also class and uh, uh, ability or disability, etc. So uh, when I started then working uh, as an economist, I started uh, introducing in my work uh, the concept of uh, inequality. Uh, so you will see at the beginning of my career, where I worked on um, real women's promotion, like large uh, companies trying to develop agriculture in the rural sector. So how will women benefit from large corporations in terms of uh, agricultural transformation? Questioning the uh, value chain, who owns what, who benefits from what, uh, been, oh, have always been at the center of my programs. Uh, so I have done, uh, in the 90s, a program on uh, socially responsible investments. Uh, I have done, in the 2000s, um, humanitarian program where women's uh, uh, priorities have been integrated into those programs, whether it's in around Southern Africa and Mozambique, whether it's in the Philippines and Thailand, where I was posted for Oxfam, 
or later governance issues in Rwanda where we have seen how women at the local level can benefit from governance systems. It was at the time when Rwanda was settling uh, for like uh, the gender path. At the, at the beginning it was very, very difficult. Women were suffering and we saw from 94 in Rwanda like efforts by government to slowly integrate women into the mainstream of the economy. Then later, uh, when I joined the UN, we started working more specifically on gender issues, like 100% like focused on gender inequality. Uh, we have convinced recently the European Union of the importance of addressing one critical issue, which is a gender-based violence. And they established a large program, it's a global program, that was the first time the EU put like a, a, a budget of more than half a billion euro only on gender-based violence. And the program is called the Spotlight, the Spotlight program. It's, it's, it's amazing. So these are the type of programs. And inside all of these programs, you see one, questioning gender inequality. You see no, number two, ensuring that we have linkage between the grassroots and the policy level. And number three, bridging gaps, rural urban gaps, gender gaps, uh, um, class gaps, etc. So those are uh, some of the, the programs. And on top of like direct interventions, I have also uh, intervened in issues that uh, are very, very interesting for you, which is the rule of law, access to justice. Yes. Uh, we have invested a lot in looking at the discriminatory laws that impact on women's life. Because if you succeed in the village to do interesting program, but the legal framework in the country is not supportive of women's life, the impact of those projects will be limited. They will not be sustained, and people in the country will not own the results of the programs. Thank you, Dr. Winato. Um, as head of UN Women and as a as a man, what do you think is the role that m men should be playing in terms of promoting women? And could you m talk to us about the He for She campaign that UN Women has? Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's an interesting aspect of our work because let's not beat around the bush. Gender inequality, men are responsible for it. Let's be clear. Yeah. Uh, and even in a situation where men are not directly intervening, they are behind the scene controlling it. So for instance, if you take uh, female genital mutilation, most of the people practicing it are women. Yes. And when you interrogate around uh, beating wives, the number of women that think that a wife can be beaten by the husband is higher than the number of men that say the same thing. So it means that the, the concept of domination of uh, women by men, it's at a very, very advanced stage where it's even integrated in the psyche of women that it's perfect. And uh, in some countries, you see that even when a wife is not beaten by the husband, she's not happy because it means that the husband doesn't like her. Yes. All of this nonsense have been based on the construction, the social construction of domination. And that's what we need to deconstruct. So uh, UN Women's work then is to say, if men hold the power, yep. 
and you want to um, undo that power, you need to associate men. Uh, so uh, the role of men is not in the gender discussion to come and grab resources that are normally going to women, but is to rather take whatever resources that they have themselves. And we have seen it in the past, uh, whether it's slavery, whether it's apartheid, we have seen a lot of people who are not victim of the catastrophe come up and say, this is not right. We have seen white people in Southern Africa to say apartheid is wrong. Mm. Okay, we have seen a lot of people in Europe say slavery is wrong. So that is exactly the same thing that we are seeing with men that are normally benefiting from the patriarchy and the gender inequality, and yet they say no, there is something wrong. And one thing that UN Women has done that is very, very interesting is to show the dimension of gender inequality that touch men and that touch the society. It is difficult to imagine, for instance, a couple that is making, let's say, $100 a month that is not enough compared to their $200 needs in the, in the family. And yet, the man saying, my wife is not going to work. My psyche is such that my wife is not going to work. And the wife, who sometimes is graduate, is sitting in the house not working, and they are making $100 a month while they have $200 needs. So this type of reflection has started, you know, interesting some men to say, yes, there's something wrong. How can we be in a global competition, like in a marathon, everybody's running with their two feet, and we are there on one foot jumping. <laughs> so the GDP of our country will completely change when the immense resource of, that women represent are brought into the conversation. Let me give you an example. Nigeria has always been like number two in Africa. Yeah behind South Africa. And some 10 years ago, Nigeria realized that they were, not taking, they were not taking into account the Nollywood industry in the capitalization of their GDP. And once they did that, they became number one. So it's exactly the way I look at the work of women in a country. Your GDP is small because you are not counting a great deal of your economy represented by women. So that's in the economy is very, very important because when you have a small GDP, what you can do in the global stage is reduced. You go to the Club of Paris where you have like the public lenders because you have a medium GDP. When you have a high GDP, you go to Club of London where you have the private investors. When you have a very, very low GDP, you go to Club of Rome, where they distribute cereal. So your economy depends on where you are, and where you are depends on whether you integrate women into the economy or not. So to come to the He For He For campaign, it's a global solidarity movement of men, bringing their energy, bringing their resources to support the gender equality movement. And some countries have been very, very smart in adapting the he for she uh, campaign at their local level. In Malawi, for instance, they did something that is called the uh, barbershop. The barbershop where, you know, 
situations where men gather to cut their hairs mm. and they have talks on, on women, etc., etc. So the orientation of that, uh, that discussion will allow uh, men to understand and some men to play like the pioneer uh, role. And in Uganda, they launched what they called the men at work for gender equality. So they took the symbol of the men at work construction kind of thing and they transformed it into say men at work to boost Women. gender inequality out of the country. And it has uh, four dimensions, uh, men at the workplace, uh, men in town, in terms of safety for women, that is the transport system, the market, etc., mm. etc. The third one is men at home, in terms of uh, how they behave at, uh, in the household. And the last dimension is men in self. And the men in self is uh, to promote uh, men keeping their sanity in the mindset even when they engage into gender uh, equality. Because when you have privilege and you want to get rid of that privilege yourself, you need to work on your own psyche because people will say, are you okay? <laughs> uh, they say that you are higher than the woman and you say, no, I don't want to be higher. So is anything wrong with you? So the idea is that men keep their sanity to say, yes, we want to get rid of privilege so that it will be for, for our own good and for the good of society. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And yes, the inequalities have definitely exacerbated with the pandemic. So uh, perhaps you can tell us how your regional office has supported women in these times of pandemic um, when inequalities have definitely increased and which are also the ways in which we, you and women collect information and track to see how women have been actually affected by COVID-19. Okay. Um, Let's be clear, uh, the pandemic uh, didn't come like in a vacuum. It came in a specific context that I was describing earlier of uh, gender inequality. So what the pandemic did was to exacerbate the existing inequality between men and women. Uh, and, 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 and what we did, which is like the number one, is to collect information and data. Because uh, what we have realized is that policy making it easier when information is available. Politicians are more sensitive to arguments that are like hard data. So in terms of collecting of information first, what we have done is that we have like a weekly uh, coordination meetings. Uh, we have every country office collect data on what is going on, what have been the situation, etc., etc., in, uh, in the countries that we cover. Remember, our office covers 28 countries in the, in the region, between East and Southern Africa. We also ensure that, uh, uh, one, uh, in terms of um, women's uh, involvement in the productive sector, they are in situations where the measures taken by governments to alleviate uh, COVID impact them very, very hardly. So for instance, they are like daily going to the market. Meanwhile, it's the lockdown. You go to countries where they do border border, government says nobody should sit behind the border border. Meanwhile, you take one border border and border border, as you know, is the motor taxi that yeah. you see in several countries. So in front, you have a man. At the back, you have the woman. 
if government suppress the back seats and they say the border border can only do cargo like carrying goods so number one the women cannot use the border border they have a, they don't have a car public transport is cut number two they have to give their goods to a border border with the risk of losing them if you want to carry goods from somewhere to somewhere else you have to give it to a man and the person can disappear with it they have said in some countries that women have to stay in the market in countries like uganda women slept in the market for weeks because they say you can maintain your activity only when you don't do back and forth so wow. where, yes so we women sleeping in the market for weeks wow. you can imagine the the sanitation yeah. you know, the violence against women etc yeah. etc et so those are some few impacts on the thing the second thing is that you look at uh, when they step out of work and they are in the house they are responsible for all of the functioning of the house mm -hmm. the health the nutrition the well-being of everybody else in the house that exposes them to increased uh, uh, infection of HIV AIDS because they have to take care of whoever is coughing, whoever is having fever, yeah, okay. whoever is, uh, it's the woman that is responsible for that. The man can stay aside and protect themselves. The other thing is the GBV, the gender-based violence in the household. We have a system of reporting on GBV cases where we have like toll-free lines where anybody that is a subject to GBV can call. What the lockdown did was two things. Number one, the wife and the husband are isolated. So the family members that usually come to visit are and not. notice this type of tension in the family are no longer visiting. Mm. So they are like, like uh, eye to eye like this and Number two, women used to call our toll-free lines when the husband is at work. Uh -huh. but now so it's... now that the husband is not at work, sitting by the phone, you can't touch the phone. Yes. So you will see that even though we have a tremendous increase in gender-based violence issues during lockdown, unfortunately, the we reporting. got reporting that went down. Yes. Yeah. So those are some of the difficulties yeah, that we see that we now try to respond to. And the last one that I will talk about is the access to justice. And I really would like to thank governments in the region that all recognize the addressing of the issues of GBV as essential services. Because we are in the lockdown where only essential services were allowed to move. Any other service is blocked uh, because of the pandemic. So government has been able to give license to our partners that provide legal service, that provide psychosocial service, and they have classified that as essential service, which allow us to continue functioning really even in the middle of the lockdown, which is also something that is important mm -hmm. to mention. Good. Yes. Um, and then I think that the next topic that we will address is representation. Yes. Um, what, what do you think, does representation uh, make a difference in terms of making sure policies are gender sensitive? Does it make a difference if men or women are equally represented? Um, it's, it's an interesting topic. Um, you see, 
we have been in the conversation about representation, not just in Africa, even in Europe. You see countries like France, where they have a parity law, and the parity law is, uh, is uh, linked to uh, a fee sanction, where they say if you have a list and the list is not a parity list, mm -hmm. you have to pay a fee. And all of the parties used to pay fees because they can't do the representation. It has evolved a lot recently, mm -hmm. but this is something that is not then just for Africa. In Africa, you have a lot of interesting experiences of efforts by governments to fix representation. Uh, and one of the most interesting instruments is the uh, temporary special measures. That is the quota, where a lot of countries fix quota for representation at the assembly. You see Senegal, you see Rwanda, Rwanda that yeah. have had like interesting results mm -hmm. in terms of representation. To come back to our time now of mm. COVID time, you realize that in the 28 countries that we have in the region, uh, eight of them have women, a woman as a health minister. And you will see an interesting twist in policy making in responding to COVID when the health minister it's is a, a woman, woman, where we have noticed a little bit more of integration of uh, uh, of uh, social dimension, like uh, women's uh, unpaid care work, uh, uh, trying to integrate women into the stimulus package that government is putting in place, you will see a voice coming from a Ministry of uh, Health that is not like purely medical voice, but like medical and social voice. Now, we have like organizations like uh, African Women Leadership Network that is like preeminent women in, on the continent that put themselves together in the network to say, we can influence policy in Africa. And they started from the African Union, Addis Ababa, all the way to every single country. At the moment, we have 25 countries that have a, an Aulin chapter. And it has changed the landscape of doing policy, particularly in the COVID time. And you work with them? UN we, women? we have been at the, UN Women has been at the heart of the creation of, because most of these women were already in partnership with UN, with women, UN women in several countries. Uh, the African Union has called all of the Ministry of Gender on the continent together in a meeting to look into the impact of COVID on, uh, on, on, on women. women. This is something that is unprecedented that shows when women are getting space in policy things uh, can change we also have uh, uh, some organizations at the local level because what I'm saying what, what I was talking about is like high-level but at local level we've seen women stepping up and trying to uh, influence policy and trying to in a lot of countries um, particularly countries where women's representation is high. It's high. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Going a bit back to governance and normative frameworks, we want to understand how is Africa placed uh, if you compare them with all of the international uh, frameworks that we have to support women. So which are these main frameworks? How is the situation of Africa? Uh, Interestingly, UN Women is one of the few agencies in the UN that have global mandates. 
our mandate is not just in the south uh, because gender inequality issues are also in the north when you see salary differences when you see uh, equal pay for equal work when you see uh, violence against women it's in europe in america in asia it's everywhere so that's why frameworks to look into gender equality are like global in scope and the one one of the most important ones is the CEDO, uh, the uh, Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Violence Against Women and Girls in the World. And it's considered like the Bible or the Quran of gender equality. At the African level, you have the Africa Charter of uh, you know, Human Rights, etc., that has an interesting annex, which is the ad uh, additional protocol that's usually called uh, Maputo uh, Protocol. So those are very powerful instruments that went very far in terms of integrating women's priority and women's rights into mainstream policy. Now, apart from that, you have some other issue uh, frameworks like the Resolution 1325 of the Security Council on Women, Peace and Security. Because what we realize is that most of the inequality on the continent quickly translates into conflict. Okay. So you see whether it's a, a representation and mm -hmm. election, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, economic uh, issues, whether it's climate change issue, whether it's migration issues, all of these issues quickly translate into conflicts. And the conflicts we know uh, have impacts on. So that resolution, uh, 1325, raised issues of uh, prevention, issues of protection, issues of participation, and issues of, of recovery when the conflict emerge. Now, looking at those framework, interestingly, most countries quickly ratify and sign those conventions. Now, it's from that where the, the most interesting starts, which is number one, domestication. The concept of domestication is a concept of downloading a global framework into a national legal system. And when you look at domestication of these global conventions in our countries, mm, it's very bit difficult. It starts getting a little bit difficult. Um, and, and in that respect, I must say that the COVID has been an opportunity. You take a country like Uganda, we have like uh, violence against women or sexual offense bill that's been in parliament for 10 years. And that bill has been passed only during COVID time. Good. So it's only when everybody has been seen the extraordinary exacerbation of gender-based violence issues that conscience has started rising around those bills. Mm -hmm. So you have a painful exercise of domestication of the international conventions into the local laws. Now, once the domestication is achieved, then you have implementation. When you have implementation of those laws, the difficulties that uh, government officials have to implement those laws. So, for instance, you see, you take a judge where the law says when there's a, a, a rape, depending on the circumstances, it's from three months to ten years. So, but if you see judges that systematically give three months, sometimes no matter how serious serious the case is they systematically give three months because they sympathize more 
with the perpetrator than the victim. So we have invested a lot in that aspect to, to where in, uh, in some countries we put what we call the bargaining, uh, uh, because they have plea bargaining. Plea bargaining. So UN Women supported countries to put in place guidelines for plea, plea bargaining so that we set minimums below which you cannot go for some of these. Uh, and we have invested in ensuring also the backlog of cases. You go in some countries, we have GBV cases that are 10 years behind yes. in the judiciary. Mm. So you see, you take a girl that, were raped, that was raped like 12, at 12. She's now 19. She's married. The husband doesn't know that she was raped when she was 12. And then the tribunal calls her and says, oh, your case is now ready. Come and Come testify. And it is terrible. So what we have been doing is to try to reduce that situation so that, and, and as I said, uh, the uh, COVID time is, uh, is, uh, is an opportune period where these things are possible. We have seen countries like Uganda and Rwanda where they have like serious acceleration of GBV cases. Uh, Uganda has even tried special courts and they are actually special sessions, but now they are looking at how they can establish a special court that will, like they have for corruption, that will specifically look at GBV. So in sum, you have global frameworks that uh, from Beijing, platform of action and regimes, you know, which are another interesting framework that push us seriously ahead in terms of getting a, you know, a, a tools and instruments to work with. And then we have the domestication that is also patchy from one country to the other. And when you have succeeded in the succeeded in the domestication, you have implementation that is a challenge, and we are trying to work. Take, for instance, when you take like 100 cases of, uh, of GBV in a typical African country, and I will take the example of Uganda because that's the closest in my mind, it reduces from the household to the community, from the community to the hospital, from the hospital to the police station, from the police station to the tribunal, and from the tribunal to the conviction. In terms of conviction rates, wow. we are at 1.5%. Yes. 1.5%. So out of the 100 cases in the household, at every single level, it reduces all the way that. And the 1.5% of condemnation, we are talking about the three months, we are talking about the six months, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So this is an area, and I know that your organization is very much interested in that case. That's why we invest a lot in it, because it is critical. Impunity is something that perpetuates the crime. If you go to the traffic light, you see 10 people stopping at the traffic light. Maybe seven of them are not happy to, to stop. They are in a hurry, they would like to go, etc. but they stop. The only reason why they stop is they know the punishment that comes from not stopping at the traffic light. It's exactly the same thing in the judiciary for the women's in GBV. When a man calculates what is the risk to engage into GBV, they are not stupid. They know if the risk is high, they will refrain. Even if in their mind they want to do it, and we don't yes. care the mind for the time being. What we care about is the situation. 
if GBV doesn't occur, we are already happy. Then later, we can work on the mind of whoever is not happy uh, to not beat the wife, etc., etc. Yeah. So that's uh, exactly where we are in terms of uh, sending signal in terms of the seriousness of how government would like to address GBV cases and situation of, uh, uh, of uh, inequality between men and women. And no matter what the policy seriousness, no matter what, the, what is the um, uh, political will of government, on the way of implementation, you see a lot of men. And those men are important in terms of how they implement government's political will. Yes, um, in terms of governance uh, norm and normative frameworks, in the recent study that was written by UN Women Impact of COVID-19 in East and Southern Africa, you highlight a problematic of land and ownership of land, specifically for African women. Can you perhaps explain us a bit more of this problematic, which is the situation? The, the land issue, even though it's uh, economic first, uh, because in a lot of uh, countries that has like, an agrarian background in the economy, the land is the most important source of revenue. And the revenue linked to land is not just the agricultural production and the output that you get from land. No, it is important, but that's not it. What is also important is land is the most important collateral when you need a loan. So by not accessing land, number one, you cannot engage in agricultural production, but number two, you can also not get credit, uh, credit in order to invest. Um, so in terms of ownership of land, you have um, uh, three uh, type of ownership. Eh? You have um, uh, access, uh, and then you have uh, control. And inside the control, it has, you can, you know, you can sell or you can, when you control land, you can sell the land, you can uh, mortgage the land, etc., etc. So what happens is some women that are even better off, their own land, they are less than 3%. Meanwhile, 80% of women are engaged in agriculture. So imagine between 80% of 3%, you have a gap of women engaged in agriculture that do not have access to land. Now, among them, some of them have access, but they don't have control. Access means that you use somebody else's land, and most of the time, the husband's land. And the husband can decide to use that land, sell, and get a second wife. There's no conversation. So that type of situation has made the women that are not poor vulnerable. Because you have to make the difference between poverty and vulnerability. A, a, a woman can be relatively well off because she's able to generate enough revenue. So when you do like a still assessment, you say she's not poor. But when you do a dynamic assessment that you and women try to prioritize, then you see that that woman is vulnerable because at the slightest will of the husband, she, she loses the foundation of that's why UN women takes the land issue very, very seriously. And for that, you, it's attached to inheritance. Because sometimes women also access the land of their father. Fathers, yes. 
So when they assess the land of the father, it's based on the will of that father. If the father dies, automatically, boys in the family inherit the whole thing and she finds herself. So those are some of the issues that we try to address. So it's, and to end on that issue of land, the interest of UN women for land is not by love of land. It's because <coughs> land is the main source of revenue. So in some countries where land is no longer the center of the economy, where economy is uh, made mostly through services, services. then we are yes. more interested in services, okay. looking at value chain, how, <coughs> uh, how the economy is made, and what is the positioning of women in the economy. Yeah. Good. Yes. Thank you. Um, so, Dr. Winato, I think you've, you've spoken a lot about um, UN Women's focus on reducing gender-based violence during COVID, and um, you've touched on land ownership. Um, are there any other gender-sensitive measures that sub-Saharan countries in Africa have adopted during the COVID era, which you think are examples for the rest of the countries to follow? Anything positive that, that you can mention outside of these um, two areas? Okay, there are three dimensions that are important that came out the first dimension we mentioned is uh, the gender-based violence. Yes. Uh, the second dimension is the uh, lack of revenue given the activities that women engage are in. Okay, since you are in trade, if you are in some uh, petty uh, activities, market, market, etc., etc. Now, the two other issues that are interesting is number one to look at the professional work of women in the health service provision, for instance, in the uh, hospitality industry, for instance, including sex workers. So when you see in the health provision, you see the, in the hospital, women are in the welcoming of sick people you know, administration, uh, nursery, etc., yes. etc. Et so before the men who are mostly doctors see the, the, the sick person, the patient, the women at several levels has already handled that patient. That exposes them. So all of the measures taken by some countries for protection of women, professional, giving information to women in terms of how they protect themselves have been positive in terms of ensuring that they are protected vis-a-vis -vis the thing. When you go to the uh, uh, hospitality industry, you look at the hotel, tourism, etc., mm. etc., et they've been seriously hit by uh, the, the pandemic and particularly the measures around the pandemic. And in situations where they have started opening, these women have also been like exposed, okay? So the last one, that is, provides good examples from some countries is the integration of gender and uh, women's priorities into the stimulus package. Government have put in place measures uh, to support income loss. Yes. Uh, um, for instance, uh, even though now it's only one in five worker that is in a lockdown environment, at the beginning of 2020, it was four in five workers that were locked down. 
So the situation is, is, is very, very serious, and uh, governments have put in place measures to do what they call uh, income replacement. Uh, income replacement is a way of uh, compensating uh, workers for the loss of income. And some countries have integrated uh, women uh, priorities or women workers within that. So those are uh, measures. The last one that I want to insist on is information. Okay, allowing surveys, allowing studies, allowing you know to bring information that will inform policy uh, in in terms of uh, uh, impacts of COVID on the economy and particularly on the women. Thank you. So um, the UN Women uh, report, um, the recent one focusing on the impact of COVID, mentions that according to the World Economic Forum most of the countries in the 28 countries that you cover have features in the legislation that do discriminate against women. Could you give us some of those examples? What are those um, discriminatory laws? Well, to be honest, uh, the discrimination laws that we are talking about uh, don't come f did not come from COVID. They predated. They predated COVID. So one example, for instance, is the difference of treatment between men and women in the workplace. Less in the public sector, because we've been working with government for a long time, but rather in the private sector, where you see that the women are sanctioned at the workplace because of their reproductive responsibility. While they are carrying the children of the whole nation, while they are taking care of the households of the whole nation, at the workplace, they pay a very high price for that. That's why the salary, you see a lot of employers that will say, oh, we have to pay women less because they have maternity leave. Are they having maternity leave for their own child alone, or is it the children of both men and women? So the idea and the message is that the reproductive work that women do has no value. Has no value. Mm -hmm. So what we are trying to do are two things. Number one, valuing unpaid care work and paying for it, which is only justice. And number two, balancing the playing fields at the workplace between men and women. So that when men and women, that's why some gender activists, surprisingly, have been fighting for the same maternity and paternity leave level. The idea is that they are not favoring men. And the idea is not even to hope that in some countries, men, when they take their paternity leave, are going to take care of anything in their house. But at least at the workplace, men will represent the same risk for the employer because they are going to also take three months or six months paternity leave. So the employer will say, oh, if the man and the woman are also taking leave, so it means that we can pay them equal, etc., etc." So those are like uh, measures, desperate sometimes measures, to ensure that the inequality is fixed between men and, and women at the workplace. The second one we talked about, which is the land issue, yes. which is inheritance issue, all of these issues are legal discrepancies. Now, I have to confess that a lot of governments has invest, have invested a lot 
in that area. The land. And no, the, the legal differences between men and women. You go to South Africa, you go to Kenya, you go to Uganda, you have efforts of fixing the discrimination between men and, and women within the law. the law. However, the problem is the customary traditional law. There's that huge tension between positive legislation and traditional law. Unfortunately, almost 80% of the population refer systematically to the traditional law, defeating the purpose of the leg positive legislation put in place by government. So we are now doing efforts to ensure that if we don't succeed in diverting people towards the positive. legislation, like a positive legislation, what we do is to work with an organization that we call COTLA, which is Council for Traditional Leaders in Africa, to which is a huge group of male and female uh, majesties, uh, royalties uh, on the continent to say, guys, you need to make pronouncements to fix issues in the traditional legislation, to ensure that the rights of girls, you see uh, like uh, early marriage, forced marriage, female genital mutilation, etc., etc., that are all fixed in the customary law, inheritance right, all of these things. So we are now making progress in ensuring that uh, uh, they, what some people will call fatwa, are launched in the favor of, of women to say nobody is supposed to marry a girl that is in school no. mm -hmm. that before this age, etc., etc. So those are some of the issues that we face when it comes to legislation. Uh, and, and that context is now the one in which COVID has struck. And then we say, how do we address COVID issues without addressing these legal uh, context that's discrepancy between men and women in the, in the countries. Thank you. Yes, um, so it is very difficult to focus in every single country here in a two-hour session, but uh, in the study, Ethiopia was a case of study. So it was a country to highlight in terms of how it has been affected in the pandemic, and uh, perhaps you can then tell us a bit about this country, what, what exactly happened and why you and women decided to, to make this country as a case of study for the report. It's very interesting. It's not that the study focused on Ethiopia. But you, but it, 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 yes, point, there's a, it's it's a like section on Ethiopia, yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> the, the idea is that um, we have zoomed on a, a situation in Ethiopia where we looked at uh, the youth and intersectional vulnerability, like youth that are HIV positive, youth that has disabilities, you know, to see how are this particular population living the context of COVID. And, and, and interestingly, what happened in Ethiopia is that the psychological dimension happened to be more important than the physical one. So you see someone that is multiple disabled, whether it's like, and that is living with HIV AIDS, and that is suffering COVID, but she will tell you the psychological impact to me mm. is more important than the physical impact. And we have already seen that situation in some cases where women are beaten by the husband. And they will tell you that the heat mm. is not 
what is making me suffer most. It is the mental situation that I am in. I'm beaten by somebody that, by the way, on the streets, I could have beat him. Most of the women that are beaten by their husband, if it had been another man on the streets who is not armed, she would have beaten him. So the idea is the mental weight. The man in front of you is not alone. He has his family. He has your the own society. family. He has the society behind him. So his weakness is compensated by the whole world. So that is the situation that has more of a mental impact. What so that's what, discovered in, 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 uh, what, that's what we discovered in, in, in that Ethiopia. particular case of Ethiopia. And the response in those situations will be different from a traditional context of. That's why the study looked at, uh, uh, I think it was 120 or 224 uh, 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 young people that are multi uh, living multiple vulnerabilities in the context of COVID. Very, very interesting. Yes, and also referring to Ethiopia, um, we included an introductory video of uh, generation equality and then one of the young activists was mentioning that in Ethiopia, um, basically, so she was saying climate change is real and its impact is unprecedented, especially on women in Ethiopia. So um, I want you to take us perhaps a bit on this problematic on how this intersection between climate change and, and, and women and the pandemic and all of this. So yeah, can... absolutely. The, um, the, um the gap between men and women in terms of how they live uh, climate change is uh, predating uh, COVID. Because we know that uh, among the uh, reproductive role of women, uh, you have uh, a contact with the climate. Uh, women uh, are engaged in um, uh, food agriculture. And uh, you, if the uh, exports commodities have like very well organization in terms of prevention of impact of climate, et cetera, et cetera. For the food, small scale production, women don't enjoy that. So now you now see uh, providing for fuel, firewoods, et cetera, et cetera. That is also the responsibility of women. Uh, fishing water in a river Quite that is drying yes, yes. out mm. is the responsibility of women. So when the man is there, there's no water. Yeah, I went to the thing. This is only what I got. And then you have violence against women. So the, the, the relationship between a woman and the climate is a complicated one. And that complicated relationship, which is the, at the heart of adapt, climate change adaptation, as you will remember, you have climate change adaptation, which is how we support the impact of climate change and uh, climate change mitigation, which is like trying to. So women are more on the climate change adaptation side, the key uh, actor in the household and in the community. Meanwhile, the resources that government is deploying to address climate change impact are not coming are going to, the to women. men. They are mm. going to men. If you look at the National Action Plan for Climate Adaptation in Africa, 80% of the measures are economic measures in the hands of men. Meanwhile, you come at the local level, you see women struggling to adapt to climate change. Number three, the coping mechanisms at the disposal of men to face climate change 
is higher than the coping mechanism of, of, of women. For instance, migration is one. A man can just take his bag and move. For a woman to move, it's very, very difficult. So it has social ways, social ponderations and things that the woman has to consider before even moving. So uh, the type of work that a man can engage in, apart from his main activity, are multiple. Women cannot do that. Like engaging in cross-border trade is a risk for women. Mm. So engaging into some other activities that will be time, you know, like evening activity is a lot of uh, problem socially. So that's why for the climate change, you, the, both for facing the issue and both for escaping the issue, women are disadvantaged. Yes. Um, thank you, Dr. Winato. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, income differences between men and women uh, in Africa. Um, is, I mean, it, you know, it seems obvious, but is there an income difference between men and women? And um, is this something that you and women have tracked? Yes, um, you will see income comes from two places, generally. A paid employment or private activities. Now, uh, if we take the paid employment, we were discussing earlier the difference between salar of salary between men and women. That's an area that is very, very uh, uh, understood, uh, understood yeah. that women have less than men. Yeah. Uh, when you talk about uh, uh, self-employment, we also see that uh, the range of things that men can do, women have trouble doing it. Number two, men are more and more investing into women reserved uh, areas before. And when they do, they get more than women. So for instance, a woman cooking, uh, uh, when the man comes in, he becomes the chief. They are not even calling her a cook or something. They call him a chef. Uh, a chef, a chef. So these type of differences is attached to value. It's, it's money that is attached to the activity. So in uh, general, in the region, we have a 10% uh, gap between employment of women and men, where you have more men that are employed. I think it's like around 70 something percent for men and 60% for women, which is already in terms of engaging into economic activities, a difference that, but the countries are not the same. Eh? You have some countries like uh, South Africa, like Rwanda, where the level of women engagement into the economy is much higher, around the 80%. Higher than men or higher uh, than no, the average? No, higher than average than women. Average, average okay. women. Uh, the only place where you have higher than men will be Rwanda, oh. where uh, I don't know if it's uh, how to do with the demographics of the country or with the policy, mm -hmm. but that's the only country where you have like like it's like more women engage into economic activities but it's very very specific case right. most of the other cases you have that uh, that huge difference should be good to understand what rwanda has done that other countries might wish to copy it is clear so. mm. it is clear that in rwanda we mm. have uh, some level of uh, political will mm -hmm. to support women in fact women don't need direct supports women need an environment yes. that is fair yes 
So you will see that when the environment is fair, women don't need anything because the, the, the strengths of women, it's like huge. Look at the education sector. Before COVID, there were more girl, girls in a lot of schools than, than boys. And when they are there, they work better than boys in school. So if the situation is not a difference in intellectual capacity, then why would they come now in the workplace and get less job than the people that they were beating at the university? So there is something in the society that is preventing women from striving. And that is that something that we are looking for okay. and stepping from the economy. Thank you. Yes, um, going a bit back to, to gender-based violence, uh, you mentioned the genital uh, mutilation, and we've seen that genital mutilation and cuttings remains very uh, high in the East African countries. So which have been like the policies that African governments have implemented? And how has UN Women supported this dynamic? Why has it increased with COVID-19? Okay, first of all, when you look at this region, and when I say this region, I mean the scope of my office, uh, the FGM, female genital mutilation and cutting, is more practiced in the east parts, Corn of Africa, uh, Somalia, Djibouti, uh, Eritrea, etc., more than the southern parts. Okay. When you go toward the south, South Africa, it's much, much less. Or sometimes some countries don't even have it at all. Okay. Now, uh, uh, beyond that, you will see that uh, in, in some places they call it it's a submarine activity. Uh, the female genital mutilation is not something that is done in the open. And things that are done in the hidden like that are very difficult to fetch out and to address. Um, we have started working with men. Reason being, women are caught only because the marriage market demand is for the mm -hmm. demand for marriage is for caught women in those mm -hmm. communities. Mm -hmm. So if you, instead of acting on the offer of caught women, you can also side. work on the demand side of court women. And if the demand side reduces, the interest of courting will also reduce. Now, and in terms of uh, um, uh, looking at legislation, most countries have legislation in place. At least there's been that advance. And then people initially have started using the difference of law or implementing between one country to the other where you see someone will go on vacation, okay. and when they come back, they are caught. Okay. And, and then there was no cooperation between countries like you have for crimes. Mm. You know, for other crimes, you have like, mm. if you kill somebody Drugs. on the other side, yes. they package you and they send you back. But when you caught, you know, it's, it's very difficult too. So that is the type of investments that we are making, discuss, discussing with government. And we have to also say that the African Union has done a lot in ensuring that member states adhere to some standards uh, and that's why they have special envoys uh, for you know violence against women and uh, she also takes care of uh, fgm as a, as a, as a. so the framework legislatively is improving dramatically 
but the implementation, as I said, for some other thing for customary and traditional, etc. And we've seen some countries that have advanced. Uh, for instance, in West Africa, a country like Benin has decided that the uh, punishment for witnesses will be exactly the same as the punishment for actors. And they are looking at a, a legislation at the moment to see how we can do that. Number two, that the withdrawal of complaint will not stop will not action. Stop. Okay. You see? Because even if the, someone is raped and they say, okay, I don't, you know, no. It's a crime and the state has to pursue the crime because it's exactly if someone kills your father, uh, the government will not stop acting because you say, I forgive him. The, the challenge, the obvious, is the main, um, the complainant is the main witness in the prosecution. So, so it's, it's complicated Absolutely. to say that you proceed. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's uh, everybody, eh, including the medical doctor that intervened, everybody has responsibility yes. and the legislation. Take an example. When there's a road accident and you bring anybody to the hospital, the doctor, they have forms to fill yes. to send to the police immediately. Yes. So if you are a doctor and a woman is brought to you for, and, and you see mm. obviously that this is violence against women, mm. but in a lot of countries, you don't have any obligation to as report. a doctor. Yes. Meanwhile, for a road accident, you have the obligation. Your license will be removed if you don't call the police immediately to say we have this accident in the, on the road. So that is the type of thing that we want to mirror in terms of uh, GBV, also in terms of female genital mutilation. Interesting. Um, you, you touched on education in terms of, you know, if you create an enabling environment for women, you don't actually need to push them to achieve parity. And I think you, you mentioned pre-COVID that education was one area where there's a lot of progress. Can you talk about the progress that we've seen in the region in terms of education, in terms of attendance rates between boys and girls and achievement. And then maybe you can touch on the impact that COVID has had on the situation, whether it's been uh, positive and negative. And then we'll also put onto the screen one of the, the very interesting charts you've had in your study, which is um, about the impact of the pandemic on girls' education. Well, to be honest, um, um, education is an area where we have seen extraordinary progress in Africa in recent decades, uh, where uh, the rate of enrollment has been high. That has been done at the favor of uh, measures like uh, free uh, education for girls uh, in order to bridge the gap between girls and boys in terms of uh, enrollment. Unfortunately, uh, between enrollment and retention and completion, there's been a problem. Uh, in 100 women that is, uh, start primary school, you see about half finishing secondary school, and you have around one-third at the university. So there's a huge loss on the way. And we have studied the reasons why we have this huge loss. It has to do with uh, sexual harassment, uh, uh, early, early pregnancy, marriage. early marriage, etc., etc. That has been like removing one, 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 one. You know, in fact, why am I saying one, one, three, three? Yeah. Because the the number is 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 very, very, very serious. So uh, when you have that context, the few that remain in school, we have been interested in their results, 
and we have noticed that the few that remain in school do better than boys in the secondary and at the university. In some university, you take the top, the top 10, mm -hmm. you see like uh, six or seven uh, are, are girls. So it's like, it gives like hope in terms of when all of them go to school to that level, you see what we can have. And unfortunately, when they step out of the school, as I was saying, they don't find job. So imagine a country that is giving job to the seconds at university. You have the top at university, you drop them, and you take the seconds, and you give them the job. What would have been the productivity of that country if people were given job according to how well they do at university and not according to their gender? And I have to say that some countries have also done well in uh, facilitating uh, access to education, higher education, and non-traditional education for girls, like investing in IT, in uh, technology, etc., mm. etc. Et you take Makerere University, which is one of the oldest university in, in this region. They have even given preferential treatment for admission to girls. I think they give 1.5 points in the assessment schedule for girls, so that we can like catch Balance more out, allow. Yeah. Yes. So these are very, very revolutionary uh, measures taken by government to accelerate the uh, uh, promotion of girls in the higher education, etc. Now, when COVID came, over that background that I just described, what happened is that government systematically closed schools. which is like a purely medical measure that is now striking the education system. So girls have been now sent back home, locked up in terms of uh, lockdown. And what I was describing between the husband and the wife is also hitting the girls. They have been pushed into some, the community because the lockdown is sometimes not strict. Girls can still go in the neighborhoods, go in small, small streets, and then all of that is risk. We find out in studies that sometimes girls were more protected in school, in school yes. than at home. So it's, it has created, and then when you look at our study, mm. you see the, the, the different path that women, that negative downstream path that women uh, girls have been following due to the, the, the closure of school, whereby you have seen uh, some of them have been married off, particularly in some schools where they have canteen. And some people were sending their children to school for the canteen because sometimes you know situation they, economic situation is is difficult you know eating at home they, they can't they afford can't so them, the yes. one meal that they eat in school was like the incentive to send the girl to school now you are not going to school that meal we are going to provide here in the house Sex. you know you get married mm. so you have like these extreme cases where girls are married off where girls are exposed to uh, violence, violence against children. And I want to um, recognize the partnership that we have with uh, UNFPA, uh, with UNICEF, with UNDP, mm -hmm. with ILO in addressing those social issues linked to 
the lockdown and its impacts on the school, on the household, and on the economy, particularly the informal and rural uh, economy. Okay, thank you. Um, in general, the, I mean, the study has, has looked at a number of areas, education, land, um, access to business opportunities, um, in terms of the impact of COVID on women. Um, maybe you can touch on up to just three, three of these key areas. Um, what recommendations would you make based on what the study has found in terms of data? What are the three key recommendations you could make to, to our governments in this region? Um, number one, to me, that looks like a normative kind of thing is the SDG. We have struggled to establish the 2030 agenda. And COVID has come like a huge blow to the path that we have taken towards the SDG. And we have integrated gender issues within the SDG. So now by diverting resources from pursuing the SDG to addressing COVID, we are now compromising our chances of reaching no the SDG. Mm. So one key uh, recommendation is to keep the eyes on the prize, to say what we want to go is 20, where we want to go is 2030. Let's not be distracted by COVID by diverting resources from the achievement of the SDG. Number two is to recognize the exposure multifaceted exposure of women in the pandemic. Whether, as we said, through the reproductive activities, the productive activities, the social engagement, all of the risks that women take in addressing COVID has to be recognized and supported. Which means that unpaid care work has to be recognized and addressed. Uh, the um, social protection of women has to be funded by government to ensure that they are compensated with the losses, etc., etc., that they have. Next is the gender-based violence. It has to be considered as a national priority. Ministries of Finance ministries of planning has become more and more interested in the GBV situation because what UN Women and Partners have done interestingly is to cost the impact, the impact of GBV on the economy. In a country like Uganda, it's 77 billion shilling spent every year on addressing GBV. So then people say, wow. wow. Yeah, Let's look at it because that money <laughs> can do a lot of things in, even for men. Yes. So then the GBV things has gradually started to become a national issue rather than just a event. The next one is um, the measures on uh, income replacement that I mentioned in the stimulus package. At the moment, you look at this region, 13 13 countries out of the 28 countries that have been studied have no, no gender measure at all 
okay. none. Wow. They have addressed G, uh, uh, COVID, mm. but they have not mentioned anywhere anything that is specific to, to women. women. You see? So, and in and, and the people, 13 out of 28 is almost 50%. Yes. It's a lot. Okay? Yes. Now, out of those that did it, none of them addressed all dimensions that I mentioned here. The, the, the GBV dimension together with the have, um, household uh, care work, together with the income and mm. stimulus, none of them address all aspects. None. Zero. So then you have some countries like uh, Uganda and South Africa that's been very, very active in protecting women in some of the aspects like uh, uh, social protection, and integrating some women into the stimulus package, et cetera, et cetera. Uganda, for instance, is negotiating a loan with the World Bank to address GBV and women. So sometimes you see like bold action by some governments, mm. but by and large, we are still uh, not behind. there. We are still behind. behind. So those are some of the recommendations that we made. Uh, and the idea is like it's nothing new. We are talking about a situation that was there before that's been aggravated and we need like now accelerated measures in to order to up. respond to it. Thank you. Very interesting. Thank you very much. So I think that we are now in time for some Q&A. We have some questions coming from our Zoom and our, and our live YouTube. So I'm going to start reading them. So we have one in migration. Um, in terms of migration, the report mentions that even though men are more likely to migrate than women, migration also impacts on non-migrant women. What does this particularly mean? I mentioned quickly migration as a coping mechanism. For climate change. For climate change. Yeah. But traditionally, in some societies, men uh, migrate. And when they migrate, they migrate normally on behalf of the family, on behalf of the community. They look for greener pasture to send money back home. That's why remittance mm. is something that is important in terms of how the money sent by migrant men back home yes. can benefit the community. Unfortunately, the impact on women is that the wife does not benefit from that. The man will send the money to his uncle. Mm. or to his father or to, or to somebody else okay and the wife will not get those resources in her hand meanwhile she's the one that is suffering from the absence of the husband she's the one that is taking care of the children while the husband is away mm. so that's double jeopardy of suffering and not benefiting you suffer from the absence of someone and you don't benefit from the money that that someone is sending back Sometimes when the man is, sometimes we have seen situations where the man gets married on the other side and completely forget about the behind. So we have also situations where the women suffer from. So the, 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 the situation has deteriorated so much that now women, women have are started migrating. migrating. Yeah. So then now we open a new chapter in terms of how migration is de de deploying. And you see, you will look at the statistics in the people crossing the Mediterranean uh, Sea, you see that they started counting a lot of women and even babies 
that is the highest level of desperation. And in our traditional community, for a woman to take the bag and move, we, it's, 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 it's finished. It's hopeless. So uh, what we are looking at in, in that particular thing is exposure to sexual harassment on the road of migration. You see, when men are harassed to get money mm. to pay for the traffickants, women are sexually abused. Okay, so this kind of uh, now when they reach, they end up in the Middle East doing completely unacceptable job. And when the COVID struck, you would have heard of stories of uh, uh, South South Syrian African women right. working in the Middle East that have been stalked and packed in places, uh, the the embassies trying to repatriate them, mm -hmm. etc. So this has been like a terrible terrible situation for girls and, uh, and women. So the migration issue, and uh, I recognize the contribution that we have from IOM, the International Migration uh, Organization, uh, that has invested with other UN agencies in addressing, supporting governments to address the issue of migration. And some regulations have been put in place. In these COVID periods, to try for those companies that are doing the women's migration to regulate and to put some level of decency in how women are uh, exported as workers. So those are the situations that uh, we have been seeing in terms of migration. Okay, we have another question, um, which is the basis of the Generation Equality Campaign from UN Women? which was actually the one that we included in our introductory video. Yes, generation equality is um, a, an invention by UN women and uh, some uh, coalitions around the world based on one simple observation. When you look at the rate at which gender equality is being addressed, uh, achieved, and you do what the economists call extrapolation and uh, projection into the future, you realize that you will need uh, 400 years wow. <laughs> to achieve gender equality. Wow. If things are evolving as we the are way. now, yes. the point of achievement is about 400 years. So some people say, no, we don't have no, that time. We don't have that time. <laughs> This is something that is have to do be done in our generation. That's why I say generation equality. This is it. This is the time. So that call by UN women has been heard worldwide. So we have like several coalitions that put themselves together to say in six areas that more or less cover the Beijing platform of action to a certain degree we are going to accelerate measures to achieve gender equality within this generation. Some people want to see it before dying. So uh, you see Mexico and France mm -hmm. have decided to take the lead to organize two forums, uh, which is like the Generation Equality Forum that took place to launch the Generation Equality as a movement. So the second forum, which is the last one in Paris, was the one where we recorded pledges from 
universities, governments, private sector, social actors that touch their chest and say, in the next five years, I want to do this. I want to do that. And we have $43 billion that have been promised in Paris. $43 billion. In terms of financing gender equality, you have to note the difference between financing and funding. We are not talking about like funding for you and women, but we are talking about financing gender equality. So we put together all of the social measures, the social protection measures, all of them have been costed and put together as a commitment by these people, whether it's private foundation, etc., to say we are going to spend on. And what we are working now on in UN Women is to materialize those pledges and to put in place mechanisms to monitor the implementation of those promises so that we don't have, again, a broken promise, but where government is now putting their feet and say, we want to do this for women. It's not for the benefit of women themselves. It's for the benefit of, of humanity. It's humanity. Mm. So that is the promise of the generation equality. And that's why UN Women is putting our full weight behind it. And as you know, we have a new executive director. And uh, she has decided that she's going to take that uh, pledge and move with it. And all of the uh, colleagues in UN Women, all of our partners, whether it's in government, in the civil society, we are ready to ensure that people that came forward to, uh, to, to do something for gender equality are supported. Okay, very good. We have a last question. This one is Kenyan-based. So um, how is the situation in Kenya? We have seen the First Lady very empowered in promoting uh, gender equality in Kenya, particularly with the campaign, No Woman Should Die Giving Birth. Uh, so perhaps you want to explain us a bit this problematic. Good. Uh, Kenya has always been a special country as a leading country in the region, okay? Because economically, when you look at East Africa, uh, Kenya is the locomotive. And uh, people have been um, uh, expecting Kenya all the time to set the example. And, and to be honest, Kenya has not failed because uh, you've seen one of the earliest uh, measures for gender responsive procurement have been put in place in, in Kenya, where a minimum has been set for government to buy from women-owned and women-controlled companies. So uh, this uh, uh, move by the First Lady enters the same uh, wave of measures that is expected from, because if women, as I said, are responsible for reproductive activities that belong to the whole community, they should be supported. We should not have women that are carrying pregnancy and risking their life for carrying a pregnancy that belongs to the community. We don't know the children, which one is going to become governor, which one is going to become president. So that child is not going necessarily to be a girl, can be a, a, a boy. So as such, how do we come together as a nation to ensure that as the women carry the work of all of us, she is supported? And it's not just a, a, an incantation. It's also investing in the health infrastructure mm. that is going to support that. Because when you say that, you need to say, okay, what is the personnel 
working on that in the hospitals? What is the infrastructure? What is the equipment? What is the legal framework? Okay? Because some people cannot attend pre... Uh, you say pre? Prenatal. Pre pre uh, yes. Some people cannot. It's not because they don't want, but it's just because they do not have the permission from the employer, from the, employer, from the husband to go. Mm. So that pledge by the First Lady has to touch on all of those aspects. Uh, and we have uh, a, country, a country office in Kenya. You know that I'm in the regional office uh, and I cover all of the 28 countries in the region. But we have a specific country office in, uh, in uh, Kenya that is led by uh, Anna Mutavati, which is the country rep for Kenya. And she's monitoring very closely. And she's working with the First Lady and government to ensure that the little help that UN women can provide to Kenya to achieve their ambition in terms of addressing those issues that we are able to provide it. Very, very interesting. I have been asked very specially by Shafiq Hasasha from our YouTube channel. Dr. Maxim, that's quite an interesting presentation, and indeed it has been. Um, I do have a last question for you. What, what can organizations like us, how can we support UN women's efforts in promoting gender equality? We need help in three areas. The first one is communication. We need the words to be passed. Uh, people need to be aware of the issue. Even personally, I was a serious, serious gender sensible person before coming to UN Women. But since I came here, it's surprising. UN Women has been the organization where I stayed more than any other organization in my life. Uh, this is my 14th year in the organization. Wow. I never stayed six years in an organization before. But you are touched by what you see, what you hear in this organization. And we would like more people to hear. And men are not necessarily all terrible people. A lot of men don't know. Seriously, they don't know. And if they know, they don't know what to do. So one of the work that I, you guys can help with is to carry our message, our methodologies. The thing is not difficult. It's possible. Because people get paralyzed when they see that the task is daunting and there's no issue. We want to carry the positive message that there's hope. We just need your contribution. The third one is resources. Raising resources, not to a particular organization, but to places where it's needed to support women, whether it's in the economic sector, whether it's a legal framework, whether it is those are things that need resources. Because you see, we think that the government's goodwill has to do with legislation, technical capacity, and resource allocation. So how do we accompany governments to put in place legislation for implementation? How do we accompany governments to ensure that technical capacity, when you take somebody in the tribunal, you take somebody in the police station, you take somebody in the hospital, do they know what they need to do? Someone in the Ministry of Finance, do they know what they need to do to do gender budgeting, uh, gender responsive budgeting, gender responsive planning, integrating local issues in national budgeting? Those are technicality. The past where we were chanting right of women, Beijing, it has passed. We are now moving into a technical sphere 
where we are talking about sociology, anthropology, and economy. And what most of the gender activists that you will see are now developing more and more tools to talk to ministries that were not our traditional ministries, planning, defense, justice, education, health, etc., etc. That way we need your help with your big audience and your big uh, notoriety and authority. So we have a very big task to support you. Absolutely. Sir, any parting shot? Well, I want to say three words. The first one, as I say, is SDG. We all need to continue. The second word is generation equality. And the third one is he for she. He for she. Men need to come. Men need to come. They need to join the fight. Because it's not a fight against them. It's a fight against injustice, patriarchy, and toxic masculinity. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you it's very much, pleasure. sir. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you very much. For those of you watching us, thank you very much for your time. This conversation will be available in our YouTube channel. Please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. If you have any question regarding this session, please do not hesitate to reach out to info at See you in our next talk. Thank you.